Father, we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and lives today in such a way that we would more clearly understand how the bride can make herself ready for this great, great wedding feast that's coming. Pray also that you would accelerate the fulfilling of the Great Commission, that it might even happen in our lifetime. And Lord Jesus, we just pray now that you would equip us to be able to be overcomers in these last days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there was this guy, and he was telling his friends how his first aid class he took had prepared him for an emergency. He said, in fact, he said, I... I saw a woman hit by a car, and she had a broken arm, a twisted knee, and a skull fracture. And one of his friends says, well, that's horrible. What did you do? He said, well, thanks to my first aid training, I knew just how to handle it. I sat on the curb and put my head between my knees to keep from fainting. <laughs> is, this, is this working? Is my... my question to you is, how prepared are you for some things that may come into your life uh, during your lifetime. We're doing this series entitled God's Grand Story. It's a grand, this grand story of the Bible. And so far, we've focused on the beginning. We focus on the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, we divided simply into four events and to four people. And that is the book of Genesis. The four events are we have creation. Then we have the fall, the entrance of sin into the world. Then we have the flood, God's judgment during the days of Noah. And then we have the division of the nations. That's the Tower of Babel, and that explains why we have all these languages and ethnicities on the earth. Those four events, followed by the lives of four people. God chose a man by the name of Abraham, promised that he would bless him and make him a blessing through his descendants. He had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They are the 12 tribes of Israel. His favorite son was Joseph. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are the four people that the rest of the book of Genesis mainly talks about. And so last week we saw that God chose Abraham and made certain promises to him. He promised that he would not only bless him, but he'd make him to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But God actually made several promises to Abraham and to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob, Israel, that not only is he going to keep those promises and show his faithfulness, but the more we understand about the promises that God made to Israel, the more we can clearly understand the days in which we are living in history. In fact, God specifically keeping those promises shows us where we land in history and that we are, in fact, in the final chapters of history. I've had several people ask me if, if the COVID pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the saber-rattling of China regarding Taiwan, the arming of Iran, if, if all these events really tell us that we are living in the end times. And my answer to that, my short answer is yes. But I have to explain, in order for me to explain why I believe the answer is yes, is I have to go back and explain something about God. God's promises that he made to Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. See, the thing that convinces me that we're living in the last few chapters of history is because of what God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so I want to walk through that. And the first thing I'm going to call, I'm going to call the first 
reason for why I believe we're living in the final chapters of history is I'm going to call this first factor the Israel factor. The Israel factor. Without the existence of the nation of Israel, we would not be able to say with certainty that we're living in the last chapters of history. That single event, more than any other event I can think of, is a prominent sign that we're living in the final years before the coming of Christ. In fact, when you consider God's prophetic calendar from the Bible, his end time plan has a lot to do with him fulfilling certain promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. So in order for us to really understand you know, where we're living, we need to really delve into that. The most striking, I think, event in prophecy of the end times is the return of the Jews to their homeland, to the reestablishment of the state of Israel as a nation, and to regain control of Jerusalem. Now, let me back up a little bit and give you a little history. The world power in the first century was clearly Rome. Rome ruled that whole region of the world. And Rome was totally intolerant and ruthless toward any nations that would not submit to her will. And in A.D. 66, there was a small group of Jews that complained about religious persecution they were going through at Caesarea Maritime, the major Roman stronghold along the seacoast of Israel. So what did the Romans do? Well, the Romans quickly sent three legions of, of their the Roman army to break up what they called a uh, disturbance. And what ended up happening was war broke out in AD 67 that lasted four years, 68, 69 to AD 70. Now those three Roman legions that were sent there were made up of Arabs, Egyptians, and Syrians, which by the way, I need to point out to you that all hated the Jews. So when the Roman army army finally broke through the city walls of Jerusalem and made their way to the temple compound, they looted the temple and then they set it on fire. They actually set it on fire against the commands of the general, General Titus, who was trying to stop them. But Josephus actually records for us in Josephus, the history, Josephus wrote, Roman historian, he actually records that Titus tried to stop them, but Titus said, but their hatred of the Jews was so much I couldn't. And thus, in AD 70, began the worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people that would last almost 1,900 years. Of course, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of God's plan because God made certain promises to Israel. This is important. He promised that in the last days, he would bring them back to the promised land. They would be a nation in the promised land, and they would control Jerusalem. And in one day, May 14th, 1948, they gained control of, as, as a nation, Israel became a nation. And then on June 1967, after the Six-Day War, they gained control of Jerusalem. And no prophetic sign is more dramatic or more convincing than that happening. Again, think about this. The Jews were scattered over the entire globe in AD 70. And then 1,900 years later almost, they are regathered as a nation in the promised land. 
Now, why is this so important? It's so important because in order for certain end-time prophecies to happen, Israel had to be reestablished as a nation in the promised land and controlling Jerusalem. In fact, let me read you a couple prophecies. Let me get this first one by Ezekiel, the prophet. This is 2,600-year-old prophecy. Starting in chapter 38, verse 8. In the latter years, you, Gog of Magog, or the Antichrist, will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants, Israel, have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had become a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. This is a prophecy, a 2,600-year-old prophecy that Israel be brought back. Zechariah, this is in the context of last days, prophesied this. In that day, talking about end times, the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. So the Lord said that his people would return to the promised land, and once again they'd be a nation. And of course, that's the case today. So the Jews had to come back to the land of Israel. They had to be a nation. They had to be controlling Jerusalem, and that now is a reality. But there's more. There's more things said about these, this, God's promises to Israel in the last days. He also promised that they would be dwelling securely with a very strong military. The prophet Zechariah foresaw a time in the last days when Israel would be this mighty military force. Zechariah 10, verse 5, he says this, They will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in the battle. They will fight, for the Lord will be with them. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 6, And that day I'll make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood, consuming on the right and left all the surrounding peoples. And that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. So they're going to be mighty warriors like David. And today, of course, Israel has the most power, one of the most powerful militaries in the whole world. And they have the, definitely the most powerful military in the entire Middle East. The Israel Defense Force, the IDF, is the most powerful military in the Middle East. So Israel needed to be back in the land as a nation controlling Jerusalem, and living securely with a powerful military. And it is, but there's more. It's also, also prophesied that they would be speaking Hebrew when they come back into as a nation. Now, you might not initially think that's a big deal, but don't forget for 1,900 years they have been dispersed among all kinds of other nations with all kinds of other languages. And you know how easy it is to lose control of a language? You live somewhere where they speak a different language for a little while, you will lose your home language eventually, particularly through generations. But the reestablishment of the Hebrew language as Israel's official language occurred on May 19, 1948. After 1,900 years, they've reestablished they will speak Hebrew. Now, there is a passage that is a little difficult to, to, to translate, but here's one good translation, Zephaniah 3.9 reads this way, for then I will restore to the peoples, talking about Israel, a pure language that they all may, be, all may call on the name of the Lord 
to serve him with one accord. So they would be speaking Hebrew. But also, they would, be, they would actually be keeping the Sabbath again. The reestablishment of the Sabbath in the social and civic law is really a sign of the times. Remember what Jesus said when he answers the disciples' questions about when will the end come, when will he return? One of the things he says is this, Matthew 24, starting in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, what he's talking about is when the Antichrist comes into the temple and demands to be worshipped as God in Jerusalem. He says, when you see the abomination that makes desolate or desolation, then let those who are in Judea flee. Then he goes on to say, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So today, the Sabbath on Saturday has been established in the national law as an official day of rest in Israel. And so now we have all these things happen. They're back in the land. They're a nation. They control Jerusalem. They have a mighty military. They're speaking Hebrew. They're keeping the Sabbath. All these things are spoken of when they will happen in the last days. But also, they will be, there will be a rebuilt temple. But that has not yet occurred. But it can happen very quickly. So the Antichrist will come to a Jewish temple, and he will commit the abomination of desolation in that holy place. So we know there must be a rebuilt temple. All right, let's read the rest of a passage I just read part of. Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Now, the apostle Paul makes it even more clear what he's talking about. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 talking about the Antichrist, he says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So the temple in Jerusalem, again, it hasn't existed since AD 70. But there is a strong movement right now in Israel to rebuild the temple. There is a group of actually tens of thousands who call themselves the Temple Mount Faithful. You can Google it. You can learn about it. And they are committed that in their lifetime, this temple will be rebuilt. And right now, the priests are already trained. They're ready. They're ready to, to begin to pick up right where they left off. The utensils, all of according to exact uh, specifications in the Old Testament, all the Utensils, utensils, I mean, for, are, are being already made and ready. In fact, Tracy and I have seen them with our own eyes. Some even, you know, believe that they've seen the Ark of the Covenant in, the, in, the, in one of the rooms in the tunnels below uh, the Holy Temple Mount. And I actually had a conversation with one of the Temple Mount faithful right there by the entrance to those tunnels, and they just closed the tunnels because, because there's the, many of the Muslims were afraid that they were going to put a bomb underneath it and blow up the Dome of the Rock. So it became a big controversy, a big crisis, and they closed that whole tour. You weren't allowed to go in those tunnels anymore. But I had a conversation with one of these Temple Mount Faithful guys. He said, he said, before we close it, I saw the Ark of the Covenant. It was in a room, and it was sealed off, and the wall was busted down. I saw it, and then we all had to be pulled out, and it's been sealed off. Now, whether or not he's telling the truth or not, I'm just saying that all that there is a bunch of folks there that are ready to get this temple rebuilt and to, uh, to restore it back to its uh, one-time glory. 
In fact, they took, some of the Temple Mount faithful took these huge stone, and it's going to be the cornerstone of the temple, and they marched around the city of Jerusalem with the cornerstone. You can Google that too. I mean, there is a, they're passionate about this happening in their lifetime. So my point is simply this. There needs to be a rebuilt temple, but it can happen quick. It can happen quickly. So Israel has to be in a nation in the land, controlling Jerusalem, strong military, speaking Hebrew, keeping the Sabbath, and and then building this temple. So that's the, we're going to just call that the Israel factor. But they also had to be surrounded by enemies that want to destroy them. That is the last day scenario. Now, do we see that today? Or is Israel surrounded by enemies that want to destroy them? Okay, but it's prophesied by Ezekiel. Again, this is 2,600 years ago. Ezekiel 38, starting at verse 2. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I'll bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield and all of them wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togomar from the remotest parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. After many days, you, you will be summoned. Listen to this. In the latter years, you will come into the land. And you will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days. So you think this is about the last days? It's the latter years. It's the last days. And he names the nations. He names them. And we know what these, who these, who these nations are. It's Turkey, Iran, Sudan, Libya. There's other nations that are mentioned as well in other countries. And by the way, today, all those nations that are mentioned there are predominantly Muslim and hate the Jews and want them wiped off the face of the earth. But keep in mind, Islam as a religion didn't even exist till the 7th century AD. And this prophecy is 600 years before Christ. So you wonder, what could make all these countries so hate the Jews, so hate Israel, they want to destroy them, wipe them off the face of the earth? And now we have the answer. These are all predominantly Islamic countries that want Israel removed. So that leads us to the second factor. The first factor that tells us we have the context of the end times is the Israel factor. All that had to be in place. The second factor is the Islamic factor. Israel had to be surrounded by enemies that hate her, want to destroy her, and that's the case. But there's even more. We even know more about that. Let me develop the second factor, the Islamic factor, a little bit. Revelation 17, 3. Let's look at this. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now here we see the final beast empire of the Antichrist. Now the beast has seven heads and ten horns. Now we know the ten horns clearly we are told, we told in the book of Daniel, these 10 horns are 10 nation confederation that are, are led by the Antichrist. These 10 nation confederation led by the Antichrist against Israel. But also the seven heads. 
The seven heads represent these seven empires that have existed throughout history and have foreshadowed the final empire to come. How do we know that? We don't just guess at these symbols. The scriptures tell us what these symbols mean. All right, let's read Revelation 17, starting in verse 9. Here is a mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And listen to this. There are seven kings. Seven. These are seven kingdoms. Five have fallen. So John, the apostle John is writing this in the first century. Five of those kingdoms have already come and gone. They five have fallen. Five of these empires. Then he says one is. So as he's writing first century, there is an empire, the sixth one. And then he says, and he, and then, sorry, one is, and the other has not yet come. There's a future one after the days, after the first century, there's another kingdom coming. And when he comes, that, when that seventh kingdom comes, he must remain a little while. Verse 11, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Okay, this really is not that hard. Let's just walk through it. This passage gives us a lot of insight about what's going to happen here. There's actually a total of eight empires. The eighth empire is the empire that Antichrist will lead to go against Israel. At the time of the writing, John says there have been five empires. Now, we know those five empires from history. There is no debate about this. The five empires are the Egyptian empire, then the Assyrian empire, then the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire. That's the five that have risen before the time of John and have all fallen. Then John says, as he's writing, there's one is. There's one in the first century that is controlling that region. What is that? That's the Roman Empire. But then he says, there is going to be a seventh empire later. And that seventh empire will be for a while, then it'll go away but then it'll come back as an eighth. So what we need to identify is if we can identify the seventh empire, then we know what empire is coming back that the Antichrist is going to lead. That'll be the eighth empire, the last day's empire. Okay, let me just make sure we don't lose our ball in the weeds here. All right, All right so the beast who, was, who once was and is not is an eighth king. So the seventh beast empire that existed then does not exist will come back as an eighth. So now we, what, are we, what we're waiting for right now is this final eighth empire. And we can know what it is by simply identifying the seventh empire. Well, what is the seventh empire? Well, the Turkish Ottoman Empire that succeeded the Roman Empire and ruled over the entire Middle East, including Jerusalem, and that's important. The Ottoman Turkish Empire ruled that area, that region of the world for 500 years. In fact, the Turkish Ottoman Empire existed right up to 1909. The only empire that fulfills this pattern necessary to be the seventh empire is the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Now remember, the seventh empire is going to be resurrected and come back as an eighth. And that empire will be led by the Antichrist. Something else we need to know from history. The Turkish Ottoman Empire was the seat of of the Islamic Caliphate. It was not until 1923 that the Caliphate was officially abolished. As recent as 1923, 
Now today, throughout the whole Islamic world, there is a call for the restoration of the caliphate. Now the caliph in Islam is like the pope to Catholics. Muslims view the caliph as the vice recent to Allah on the earth. And today the Islamic world awaits, they're awaiting for the restoration of the caliphate and for the return of the caliph. Now in 1948, Israel, Israel became a nation after 19, almost 1900 years of worldwide dispersion. And the devil tried to kill off the Jews with all of these empires. The Egyptian empire, the Assyrian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Persian, the Greek, the Romans. He tried with every empire. And he tried with the Ottoman empire. And now that's gonna, the empire is going to come back and the Antichrist is going to lead it. And he's going to try one more time. One more time. Now, the fact that we see all these things, you know, taking place right now tells us that we're living in the final chapters of history. So we have the Israel factor, really important. Then we have the Islamic factor, very important. But there's a third factor, and I'm going to call that the fulfillment of the Great Commission factor. You know, Jesus was asked about the end times with his disciples in Matthew 24, and he says, there's one, there's one verse, there's only one verse in the whole Bible that tells us when the end comes, when the end comes, exactly when it comes. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says, will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, not until then, and then the end will come. So there is, there is a movement of, of, of every nation every people being able to hear the gospel before the end comes. And right now, we're seeing a, a momentum in world evangelization and we're trying to reach every people group. You know, you know we, have a, and we have a lot of you know, linguistics, linguists in our church. We have a lot of missionaries in our church. And some of, the, some of our own people have put together some of the software that Bible translators use. It used to take Bible translators 10 to 15 years to translate the Bible into the heart language of a people group. And now with the computer software that we have, some of that can be done in a year. So that the speed of things is really ramped up, how fast things can, can be done. And so in our lifetime, in our lifetime, the Great Commission can be fulfilled. So once again, we have the Israel factor. All that had to be in place. Islamic factor. They've got to be surrounded by enemies that are going to attack them and hate them. They're going to be unified around something. What are they going to be unified around? Well, they're going to be unified around this caliph and the caliphate. Now, factor number four. Factor number four is the birth pains factor. Certain things that Jesus said are going to happen as birth pains. All right, let's read Luke 21, verse 10. Then he continued by saying to them, Jesus is speaking here, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And Matthew uh, 24, he says, and there will be wars and rumors of wars, wars and rumors of war. Luke 21, 11, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. But these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. So according to Jesus, there are going to be wars and rumors of war. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be plagues and famines. And all this is going to increase, he says, like birth pains. This is really important. We all understand how birth pains work. 
They increase with frequency and intensity as the time draws close for the baby to be born. The same will happen with these events. These things will happen with more frequency and intensity until there is the birthing of Jesus returning to the earth. All right, think about some of these now. All right, wars and rumors of war. We have right now, of course, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, but there's rumors of maybe they'll go further. Maybe there's more. Well, you know, we hear about China. There's rumors that they're going to take Taiwan. And in Iran, there's rumors that, you know, they're going to get a nuclear bomb and they're going to wipe out Israel. And there's, and there's, there's all this talk about what's North Korea going to do. And on and on and on. There's wars and rumors of war. And you're thinking, yeah, Gary, but that's happened throughout history. Yes, it has, but not with these factors in place. Not with the Israel factor in place and not with the Islamic factor in place and not with the Great Commission factor in place. It's very different now. Now the stage is set. It's very different. These earthquakes, by the way, this Greek word here, seismos, is shakings. We translate it earthquakes, but these shakings are broader. This term is used in a broader way than just a land earthquake. The same term is used of tsunamis, earthquakes underwater, but of any kind of shakings, hurricanes, typhoons, violent storms. And we got, we got even, the, you know, the secular media telling us that we're having all these violent storms. And, of course, their reason is global warming. But whatever the reason, Jesus said that these shakings will come with intensity and frequency. But now it's different because now the other factors are in place, the Israel factor, Islamic factor, Great Commission factor. And famines. Of course, we can see we're seeing, we're seeing greater, larger numbers of people in famine in the 20th century and 21st century than all the other centuries combined. Research is C. There's no, there's no contest. But again, there's always been famines. They say, so, yeah, but not with these factors in place, not with the Israel factor, Islamic factor, and Great Commission factor. It's very different now. And what about plagues? What about the COVID pandemic? You know, it's, you know who would ever thought before the COVID pandemic, let's just go back two and a half years ago. I don't think there's a person on planet Earth that thought something's going to happen that's going to shut down the entire world economy and shut down schools all around the world, shut down sports all around the world, shut down businesses, shut down churches, close them all over the world. I don't think there's anybody that thought that could happen, and here it happened. You say, yeah, but we've had other pandemics. What about the Spanish flu? Yeah, but during that time, those others, the Israel factor wasn't in place. So it couldn't be. The Islamic factor wasn't in place. The Great Commission factor wasn't in place. But now it's all in place. My point is simply this. Everything is set up. The final pieces are all in place that show that we're living in the final chapters before Jesus comes again. So my question is, so, what, so how are you going to live? Just think about this. Let's say you're on the Titanic, but you know ahead of time it's going to hit an iceberg and sink. And you know ahead of time there's not enough lifeboats for everybody. And you know all that. And you know that just th- and you're on that Titanic in three days, it's going to hit an iceberg and it's all going down. And you know that in advance and you're on that ship. So how would you be on that ship? Would you be, you know, trying to get an upgrade? <laughs> would you be wanting to make sure to, you know, polish all the banisters? 
Or would you be thinking, you know what? This ship's going down. First of all, am I ready? Am I prepared? You'd ask yourself that question. Then I think you start to think about people you love on that ship with you. Are, are they ready? Then I think you might be thinking, everybody in the ship needs to be told something. They need help. Because we're not this ship is not prepared. It's going down, and everybody's going down with it. And so as we as we're living in the final chapters. I think it behooves us to just stop and think, how am I living my life? How do I want to spend whatever days the Lord gives me from now on? How am I going to live it? Am I going to live it like I really know what's coming? Like someone on the Titanic? Am I just going to live it like the rest of the world lives it? Total disregard to the realities that are, I think, you know, on a like sprint our direction. So what are we to do? One of the things is prayer. I mean, every believer better get a prayer life. Luke 21, verse 34, here's what Jesus says. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. There's going to be a lot of people, that's what they're going to do. As things get harder and harder, they're just going to drink more and more and more. Drunkenness, dissipation, worries of life. And that day, that day, come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So I'm constantly, you know, encouraging us to to really pray for all these things and so much is at stake in our prayer lives, ministries, you know, and so forth. But you know what else is at stake in whether or not we develop a prayer life? You. You're at stake. I mean, he says, pray that you'll be able, that you have strength to escape. Pray that you're going to be strong enough to handle what's coming. So it's so important that we get a prayer life. You've got a pr- private prayer life, but also that we have a corporate prayer life. And let me tell you something that's coming that I'm really looking forward to is on Palm Sunday, which is just a few Sundays away, Palm Sunday, we're having, our, of course, our morning services. Then we're having an all-church prayer service, 5 to 6.30, that we're asking everybody to come, cram in here and come. And then we're going to spend Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We're going to have morning prayer, noon prayer, and evening prayer. We're asking everyone in church to come to one of those prayer meetings, Monday through Thursday. They're going to be at different times. And to take what, that day you come to that meeting, fast that day. Every one of us, we fast, we pray. And then we'll go after Thursday, Friday, we have our Good Friday service. Then we'll have our Easter carnival. Then we have Resurrection Sunday. But what we're praying for is that God would fan the flame of revival fan the flame of his spirit to move mightily in us and through us. And so, but we're also, I'm asking leaders, and I'm asking everyone to join us. I'm asking elders, and I'm asking our staff that we pray and fast leading up to the time of prayer and fasting. That God would send revival, and that we would we'd see a move of God. We'd see him fan the flame. And so, we got to be those who pray in light of what's coming. Also, evangelism. I mean, we need to be telling people, you know, the truth is Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And if they don't know Jesus, they, they, they got a big problem. They got an eternal problem. And so we need to be telling people about Christ. We need to be telling people we know and love. We need to be telling people that God has put us in a sphere of influence with about Christ, the gospel. And then missions. Why are we such a missions church? Well, first of all, because I think every church should be one because that's the heart of Jesus. But even more so in these days, 
We are, we are looking hard at reaching unreached people groups. Where, where, are the, where are peoples that still not even heard the truth of Jesus? And so we're going to continue to ramp that up. In fact, our goal as a church is we're so glad that we have no debt as a church that we're looking for more and more ways to funnel more money into missions. So more and more of us can be involved in really seeing this happen in our lifetime. And finally, the fourth thing that we ought to be about as a, church, as a people, as a church, as Christians, we ought to be standing with Israel. Do you know what's interesting about these passages where Israel's attacked? She's alone. There's no other nation standing with her. Isn't that interesting? Two years ago, we couldn't imagine that there would be a scenario that America wouldn't stand with Israel. It's not hard to imagine now. But the church needs to stand with Israel. We need to stand with the Jewish people because what the devil, the devil's going to persecute Christians and Jews. We're in this together. And we need to be those who, who will love them, pray for them, and even provide protection for them in the days to come. So in light of all this, just remember that we're living in these days and think about how am I living and, and just and go back to that simple picture of the Titanic. How would I live if I knew that ship's about to sink? Well, this whole ship we're riding on is about to sink. Now, what, I'm not unpacking the word about. I don't know how much time. Only the Lord knows. But we do know we're in the final chapters. That's not hard to know. Jesus actually rebuked the disciples for not knowing the season which they're living, the times of the, you know, the, the signs of the times, he called it. You don't even recognize the, you know, the, the, the signs, these times that, you know, that we're living in. And so we can know the time. The signs of the times, we know. We don't know the exact day. Only the Father in heaven knows, but we can know the season. And these are the last chapters. So how will you live? Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, you haven't left us to just wonder and about what's going to happen. You've told us what's coming. You've made it clear the seasons what we're living in. We don't have to wonder. We pray, Lord, you'd enable us, all of us, to be able to really become men and women of prayer that will stand firm in the days to come, that we'll be quick to share the gospel, that we'll be involved in trying to see missions the Great Commission fulfilled in our lifetime, and that we'll stand with Israel, we'll stand with the Jewish people, Lord. And Father, we also pray that would you accelerate the fulfillment of the Great Commission? Would you, Lord, send forth laborers into the harvest? And would you show us how, as the bride of Christ, we can make ourselves ready? Show us, Lord. Show us the things we can do. Release divine strategies, oh God. Give us ears to hear. We pray that for ourselves. We pray that for your people, Lord, in this region and for your people around the the whole world. Lord, that that the church would rise up. So we're asking you, Father, fan the flame of passion for the Son of God. Fan the flame, O oh Lord, that we're passionate for him, that we'll be able to be that generation that's, that's part of that says the spirit and the bride say come, that we will be that, that will be us, Lord. We'll be in that generation that says with the spirit, come, that we're eager for you to come. Speed things up, Lord, and so work in our hearts that you can use us, Lord, to accomplish your purposes in these days. I pray all this in Jesus' name.